Anaerobic digesters are an integral part of solids treatment at municipal wastewater treatment plants. If you were to peek under the lid of these structures, you would see a very complex process that involves multiple chemical and biochemical reactions that are often occurring simultaneously. On today's episode of Coatings Decoded, we dive into part one of a two-part interview with Dave Walker of Avid Protective Products. In this installment, we discuss anaerobic digesters and how they operate within a wastewater treatment plant. Our conversation will then shift to corrosion within these structures and how protective coatings can help to protect these key wastewater assets. So without any further ado, let's jump right into the conversation. Thank you for joining us for the latest installment of Coatings Decoded. I'm Brian Cheshire, the Director of Sales for Water Wastewater here at Tenement Company, and I will be your host today. Today, I'm joined by Dave Walker, owner of Avid Protective Products, LTD. Our conversation will focus on municipal digesters, which can sometimes be a little more complex than meets the eye. Also in our conversation, Dave will share some of his recent findings on some inspections that he conducted on some digesters in Ontario, Canada. So with that said, I would like to jump right into the conversation. Dave, welcome back to Coatings Decoded. Thank you very much for the invitation and thank you for taking the time today to discuss uh, digesters and, and what it means for the coatings. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And, and Dave, I, I know you've actually been on Coatings Decoded before, but but I believe it may have been a year or so. So, uh, so for this. Yeah, it's been about a year since we uh, we did a couple of sessions. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, I remember you, you and your son Cameron actually came on for some. So, so, so we're definitely excited to have you back today. I guess I guess I was entertaining enough. So. There you go. There you go. You, you got the invite back. So that, that is always a good sign. <laughs> well, for, for the sake of our listeners, um, because it's been some time, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and what you currently do in, it, within the industry? Sure. So, uh I have been representing Tanemic now here in Canada for uh, coming up on 23 years. I am in about my 35th year of being in the uh, protective coatings industry. Uh, I am a AMP NACE uh, senior coating inspector, which I've held since the uh, mid-90s. I have uh, served with, in terms of protective coatings and industry standards with AWWA in the past. I have uh, authored coating standards. I have assisted with uh, the ongoing revision of those standards as chair for C222 for the polyurethanes, as vice chair for C210 for the epoxies. I have served with AWWA in the past on the steel pipe committee, which is the overseer. Uh, for those standards as they're rewritten and as they're maintained. Um, and uh, I guess that's about all on my resume. Well, I would say that that's a very impressive resume and, and you, you've definitely done, uh, I would say done it all in the industry. I mean, you, you've sold, you've consulted, uh, you've been an active member of standards. And, and I know just personally, I mean, you're definitely a respected voice, uh, both to myself and to a lot of others, or a lot of my cohorts within the industry. So 
So, so we're very excited to have you on today and, and really look forward to hearing about some of your findings uh, recently within some of these digesters that, that you inspected. Well, thank you. Yes, sir. Well, I, I think before we can really jump into that, uh, Dave, I, I think it's prudent that we we first talk about digesters and really how they operate. Um, I, I know some of the presentations that I've done before, it, it, it's it, we, we throw the pun out there that some of these items are, are, are hard to digest. So um, so at this point, we, I guess we, we could maybe install a laugh track or, or what may be more fitting is maybe more of a car crash sound, you know, since, since I attempted that really bad joke. So. No, I, I, you got a smirk and a laugh out of me. So there you go. Okay. Well, at least one person is. So. See, I, I knew we were being recorded, so I couldn't do my guttural laugh. So there you go. <laughs> well, I appreciate you patronizing me today. So. <laughs> Well, but but seriously, getting back to the conversation and talking about digesters, uh, uh, many of you listening may be somewhat familiar with these structures. You know, all, uh, or I mean, really, the place you're going to see these, which not necessarily all the time, because there are digesters on you know agricultural facilities. But for the most part, when you see a digester, it's typically going to be at a municipal wastewater treatment plant. And, and so where this fits into the treatment process is it typically shows up in, in the solids treatment portion of the wastewater treatment plant. And so, so what happens is typically these solids are collected in primary and secondary treatment, and then they're sent to be thickened, and, and ultimately they're sent to digesters. And, and so the, really the main purpose of digesters are for uh, the waste stabilization um, and also for energy production. And so when you look out there, there's there's several different types of digesters that you may see that uh, there's aerobic, there's anaerobic, and then there's what we call ATADs, which those are autothermal aerobic digesters. Um, from my experiences, I've, I've really seen mostly anaerobic digesters uh, within my travels. Um, so, so would you agree with that, Dave? I mean, has that uh, kind of been your findings, yeah. findings as well? Absolutely. The majority that we that I've seen that I've been in and uh, and worked on over the years have been classified as the anaerobic. Well, and I'd say that there's really a reason for that. I mean, in essence, those are going to be some of your more efficient ones. Um, and, and so ultimately what happens in these, it, it's, it's a sequence of processes. And ultimately what happens is, is you have microorganisms that are broken down um within this process in the absence of oxygen hence the name anaerobic and so if you think it, or, or if you look at an anaerobic digester ultimately what it is, is is it's a reactor or a process vessel and within this process vessel you've got multiple chemical and biochemical reactions occurring at, at some point or, or in most cases these are occurring simultaneously so it's a very complex process when you really take a look under the lid there um so digesters can be rectangular, they can be cylindrical, or they can even be egg-shaped. And then you also see different types of covers on these. You see some with fixed covers, and you also see some with floating covers. And so once again, Dave, I'll, I'll ask you, I know you've, you've, you've been in a lot of these different digesters, but uh, what's been your experience has been some of the more common types that you've seen out there? Uh, in our area, the majority, uh, if not all, are classified as the mesophilic anaerobic. The construction types uh, almost exclusively are around um, and split fairly evenly, whether it is a concrete lid with concrete walls and floor 
or whether it's a steel lid. And again, whether it would be classified as a floating lid or a fixed lid, the majority of those are fixed lid. Uh, the secondary digester type of realm of a floating lid is less uh you know, less common and it's seen much more rarely. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, you know, it, it is important to know though, since we do have different listeners from, from really all over the country. I mean, there there's, when you say digester, it, it could appear in a different, you know, d- different forms, I guess, and different types. So, so I wanted to make sure we laid that out that when we talk about these, there's really not one set type. However, you do have some types that are more common than others. Correct. So, um, but talking about the process, and, and I'll kind of kind of put on my engineering hat for a minute, and 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 kind of kind of nerd out for a minute. But um, we talked about some of the main purposes of of these of the digestion process, and and one of those is reducing your volatile solids. And and so it, it's important to note that anaerobic digesters uh, can reduce those volatile solids by thirty to fifty percent, and then they can also reduce pathogens um, anywhere from eighty five to ninety nine percent. And, and so that that's really one of the other main goals that you're trying to achieve throughout this process. And so if, if you look at those numbers, um, and that's that's really exclusive to anaerobic digesters, but you can see with that type of efficiency, uh, one of the reasons why this type of digestion process is so prevalent. And and so you talked about a term a minute ago, mesophilic. And so um, another term I'll throw out there is 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 a term solids retention time or SRT. And, and, and so th- this is another very important metric when you start talking about digesters. And, and that metric is, is greatly affected by temperature. And so typically you're going to see digesters operate in, in two different distinct temperature ranges, um, either mesophilic or thermophilic. And so mesophilic is going to take place around that roughly 80 to 100 Fahrenheit. Um, which you'll have, you'll have to tell me on the Celsius, Dave. I, I know uh, being from Canada and ha- maybe having some Canadian listeners, um, I can't rattle off the Celsius as quickly as you. But So um, we, we consider that environment in the 38 to 40 Celsius operating is maximum efficiency for that design. Perfect, perfect. So, um, yeah, so mesophilic's in that range. Got thermophilic is going to be even hotter. So it's going to take place uh, typically between that 110, 140F range. Um, when you look at these and, and talking about that term solids retention time, um, the, the hotter temperatures are, are going to make those, those digesters more efficient. And so you, you typically are going to have a much shorter solids retention time. And so that thermophilic, uh, because it is operating at that greater temperature, um, that SRT can be as short as five to 10 days. But then when you go back to that mesophilic range, talk about the little, the lower temps, um, that SRT time can be between 10 to 30 days. And, and so ultimately it depends what type you use depends on the size of the vessels that you have. And then also uh, what output you want out of these, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Um, but Dave, I, it's been my experience that, that roughly I'd say 80 to 90% of the digesters that I've ever seen out there are, are in that mesophilic range Uh would you agree with that or, or in your travels, it, it, has, has that been what you've seen? 
Here in the more northern climates, uh, and specifically Ontario, almost exclusively it has been the mesophilic temperature range. Mm-hmm. Thermophilic, uh, we have seen occasionally in different geographical areas, but it is a r- very rare occurrence here. Gotcha. Yeah, we're starting to see more and more of, of the thermophilic pop up. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons is is the... Um, the biogas production, then also the um, the type of waste, you know, whether it be class A or class B, which I won't jump the gun. I'll get into that in just a second. But um, but first, talking about the biogas. So uh, throughout the digestion process, one of one of the things that's produced is is, is a biogas, and so the composition of this biogas is going to be uh, comprised typically of methane carbon dioxide, um, and then you'll also have H2S, and then you'll, you know, along with that, you'll have have various other, very small amounts of different gases. But for the most part, methane is going to be the, the biggest producer. And so uh, throughout a typical process, you're going to have roughly a, a biogas composition of 65 to 70% uh, methane within that biogas. And then carbon dioxide, you're going to have roughly 25 to 30%. And so um, that's important to note because that methane, in a lot of cases, can then be turned around and either sold back to the power grid, or in a, in most cases, it can be used to actually power the wastewater treatment plant. So you end up more or less having that closed loop, and you end up having a much more efficient operation uh, by being able to utilize that, that methane that's being produced on site. Um, so, so Dave, do you have anything to add with that, talking about uh, biogas and, and, and maybe you know, what some of the plants you've been in? I mean, where do you typically see that biogas being used? Uh, it's either used in the plant itself for heating or pro- the process itself. Um, in many cases, we still see it burnt off. Um, and the conversation in the industry, <clears throat> as we deal with uh, new designs coming on, there's more and more conversations about using that uh, energy source in a cogeneration environment, and then that leads into, as you've described, the conversation about how best to run that vessel to get the maximum gain for that end purpose. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree with that, and, and yeah, thank you, thank you for that input there. Um, really, the last thing we'll, we'll, we'll talk about here, as far as process goes, is, is the biosolids, and so. Um, I mentioned Class A and Class B. So without really getting into the the specifics of these, um, just think of it as Class A is going to be that cleaner biosolid. Um, in a lot of cases, this can actually be be sold as as fertilizer. And I've even seen some plants that have sold their own branded fertilizer um, as a result of this process. Um, but typically to get that class A, in a lot of cases, you need either that thermophilic operation or you can still get there with a mesophilic, but a lot of times it's going to require multiple stages of that treatment. And so there's a lot of plants that may not be able to take on that added expense nor have that added time um, that it takes to get there. Um, So class B, if if you look at those, I mean, these are typically going to be a little lower quality than class A. In a lot of cases, these are just going to be used for soil amendment or even for for fertilizer and, and applications that don't involve any kind of food that's going to be consumed by, by the general public. 
So, Dave, I, I guess one other thing I'd, I'd like to to talk about briefly, and, and this is important when we talk about uh, corrosion and digesters, uh, which will be our next topic here. But um, there are different types of feedstocks uh, that municipal treatment plants use to to more or less load or, or fuel their digesters. And so uh, we have what's called municipal waste. Then we also have what's called industrial waste. OK, yeah. Yeah. So, so municipal waste is going to be just your traditional waste that's coming in you know, from households and, and maybe in some cases, you know, a lot of businesses. Um, when I say industrial waste, I don't want you to think, you know, or, or have the listener think chemical waste, anything like that. When we say industrial waste, we're talking about waste from food and beverage processing plants, pharmaceutical plants. That could even be waste from slaughterhouses, dairy plants, and really any other agricultural operation. And, and so, uh, depending on the type of feedstock that you're using to feed that di that digester, you know that could also really shift the outcomes that you see w within those. Because um, typically, industrial waste is going to be a little more prone to have some volatility, uh, which can can in turn throw a digester into what we call upset conditions. Which ultimately, when we talk coatings, uh, there's really not a lot of coatings that can hold up in those upset conditions. So so. I'd, I did think it was important to our conversation that we at least throw that out there, especially setting up that conversation on corrosion. It's very important. And I've heard the term sour. The, the digester has turned sour. I've heard the term rogue. So there are a variety of way, ways that you hear people describe when those uh, interior environment becomes non-traditional. So, yes. Agreed. And, 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 if you want to take a deeper dive into that, I know we, we've got some presentations that, that we here at Sinemic Company can, can come in and do for your engineering firm where we really talk about that process more. We really take a deep dive into you know, the different stages of digestion where you talk about hydrolysis, acetogenesis, acetogenesis, and then methanogenesis. And so when we talk about those, we really dive into uh, what those opposite conditions look like and we talk about some of the volatile fatty acids and some of the outputs that ended up happening when you, when you have a very high concentration of those. Um, I would say for today's conversation, I mean, we, we could probably talk an hour on that, Dave. So, so I think we, we probably should shelve that deep dive today because um, I definitely want to want to leave some time uh, where we can really talk about some of your findings uh, in, in some of these recent digesters that you were able to inspect. But I, but I think it is important to dwell on that in passing in our discussion today because it goes to the premise of what we'll touch on later as well in that the assumption that all environments are the same so that we describe it however we want, that it's a mesophilic anaerobic digester and just assume what it means from a temperature or an input, that is a dangerous process to follow, that a prudent person should be asking for data to make sure that the solutions that are offered are suitable for that. And even if we do all that, a digester in the startup phase can mimic those rogue, sour, uh, whatever term you want to describe, mm -hmm. where it can, just in that process of starting up, it can produce uh, more acidic acid, it can have a much lower pH, it can have uh, a VFA alkalinity ratio that is not good, and it can impact, depending on how long that startup process occurs, 
it can impact that coding and your eventual life uh, cycle that you would anticipate from that technology that was selected. So it's a very important thing, but I think we're we're good not to deep dive on that today, but it does feed into the basis of proper coding selection given the known environment. Those are great points, Dave. And, and I would say, given a plug to, you know, to the presentation that we can come in and do. Um, we really talk about that and, and, and really dive into that. And, and the takeaway from that, I would say, is that we'll leave with you, at, you know, to both today and when we do that deeper dive in that presentation is don't assume. Don't, don't assume that all of the, these digesters are the same. Um, really to be able to give the proper coding recommendation, we're, we're going to ask all those questions. We're going to ask, you know, what is the type of feedstock that, that's being used in this digester? You know, what is the uh, the pH range of this? What is the temperature range? Um, how much temperature fluctuation has there been over time? You know, in, in a lot of cases, um, I mean, every bit of this, every bit of this information is tracked. And so, um, We've had some owners give this to us in both graph form and then also just just giving it to us verbally. Um, but understanding the track record of these digesters and how they've operated over time, um, and, and then really looking at the inputs and the outputs. Um, you know, talking about the inputs, we, we talk about the type of waste. Outputs, you know, I, I mentioned earlier the biogas. Um, typically, that methane is going to be in that 60, 65% range. If we're looking at the at your output of the biogas in your digester and it's say 50% methane, then we know something is probably off there. So um, coming to the table with a lot of that information really helps people like Dave and myself be able to give you the proper recommendation. So I don't want to glaze over that today. Um, so I did want to definitely throw that plug in there that we have a lot more of this information um, that we can give you. Um, for the sake of a podcast, you know, we could probably talk about it for another hour, as I mentioned. So, so we'll, we'll probably shelve that for now. Um, but Dave, I know th throughout some of our conversation, I'll, you know, anytime you can pepper any of that in, that would definitely be helpful. Yeah, the, the, the only other thing before we move away from that is, and we're going to talk about here in a little bit about going into digesters um, and looking at the prior coding systems that were used there and the lessons that can be drawn and learned from that and how the importance of it that element is is a if there's many legs supporting a good project from design to understanding that feedstock to understanding the operating conditions and selecting the coding system going in and looking at what happened what was the previous technology what happened to it that helps people understand and create a solution that it will lead to a longer lifespan, longer life cycle and better decision making. So that is another element of understanding the environment that we're looking at and picking the right solution. And Dave, that, that's a great segue because really the next question I was going to ask you is, is uh, talking kind of through your, some of your inspections and some of your personal observations, you know, where have you typically seen corrosion manifest itself within digesters? Uh, it, it's, 
the most aggressive, if we take a digester and divide it into two zones, and we can use the word, the upper sphere, uh, you know, area, call it the gas zone, um, and everything where the sludge is, we can classify that as immersion. So between the two of them, the majority of the cor corrosive, active corrosion activities happen in that gas zone. You can still have it in the immersion zone because we still have a, a corrosive environment, but the majority of it's in the gas zone. Mm -hmm. Well, and kind of talking through some of these inspections, I know you, you probably have observed all types of different coatings uh, being used in digesters, you know, I, I would say throughout your region. Um, could you bring oh, I, I, I actually thought you were about to say because of my age, you've been around oh. so long, Dave, that you've likely seen a variety <laughs> of technologies used over many decades. I thought that's where we were going with that question. But yes, uh, the, as time goes on and different geographical uh, elements play into it as well, uh, knowledge of the design community, the, the knowledge of the the applicators and their suppliers play roles in what technologies are used. But yes, we've seen a transition over the decades from what technologies were used from coal tar epoxies. And really back then it wasn't that coal tar epoxies were used on steel and concrete in the, in the digesters because they were tested and proven. <clears throat> it was a technology that was known that it had good uh, impermeability uh, properties in many ways that it had survived in <clears throat> others, you know, aggressive environments and therefore it was, and it was inexpensive relatively. So that became a, a you know, the go-to solution. But then as technologies evolved and all of a sudden we had 100% solids, thicker film materials, we see, we saw a transition into more uh, 100% solids polyurethanes. And then as the technology evolved, those coal tar epoxies, which were, could have been polyamide or polyamine, transitioned into 100% solids, specialty type of solutions, whether they be amine-based, Novolac, or any of those. Um, we've seen a variety of polyureas and off-branch of polyurethanes uh, attempt to be used uh, and then cementitious materials as well, whether they be fairly inexpensive acrylic cementitious or calcium aluminate. Um, and each one of those <clears throat> offers, has offered, still offers um, a variety of lifespans. And not all of them are known. <clears throat> not all of those technologies are proven to survive in the environment, but they're all offered in the marketplace and they shouldn't be viewed as equal. Yes, that's kind of a wide range you've talked about there. I mean, anything from historically to from coal tars all the way to cementitious products. Uh, I, I'll, I'll be curious to hear, I, I know some of your uh, recent inspections, uh, you actually inspected some that have some of these technologies. So I'm, I'm really excited to hear some of your findings there um, with some of these specific technologies. Thank you for joining us for part one of this interview with Dave Walker. Today's episode really helps to set the stage for part two of the interview, where Dave talks about some key case histories and overall findings from some of his recent inspections of anaerobic digesters in Ontario, Canada. 
We hope to have you join us for the conclusion of this insightful discussion. Thank you again for joining us today for this episode of Coding's Decoded.